0: Are you ready for common sense retirement planning advice? Tired of the noise coming out of mainstream financial media that doesn't always have your best interest at heart? Looking for someone who will answer the tough questions that applies to your money? Well, welcome to the Plan to Retire podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining along today. Today, we're going to have an informative podcast on life insurance. No, this isn't going to be a sales pitch. This isn't going to be an anti-life insurance pitch. This is going to be a neutral, objective education. I'm going to provide you on the different types of life insurance, where I think the proper application is on those different types of life insurance, and as well as what I consider some of the common life insurance sales scams. But before we jump into it, just to remind you that this is a podcast. This doesn't mean we have a planner-client relationship. Anything we talk about today is not a solicitation for me to sell you some type of insurance or some type of financial planning services. If you're a client, you know you're a client. If you're not a client, this isn't trying to sell you anything. So if you take my advice, it's simply for education. But we do appreciate you being on the ride. You know, today it's in February here in Maryland. And we're uh, being snowed in today. It's been quite a snowy February. So wherever you're listening... I sure hope you're healthy and you're listening somewhere that's a lot warmer than here. What does a financial planner do when he's working from home on a snowy day? Well, you know, I started my day about six o'clock, reviewed some client accounts, went out, shoveled a little bit of snow, came in, cleaned up some more database issues, responded to some of emails, just went out again and shoveled a little bit more snow, and I'm going to come back in and record this podcast. So here we are. Great to have you along today. Now, let's first talk about the different types of life insurance. Okay, Generally, there's two different types of life insurance. There's term insurance, and there's what I call permanent life insurance. Now, there are many flavors of each of these. It's kind of like if you go to get ice cream today, you know, there's no longer chocolate and vanilla. You've got, what, 50 or 60 flavors. But we're going to break it down into generally those two main groups. And let's talk a little bit about those two types of life insurance. Let's first talk about term insurance. Term insurance is a type of insurance that you purchase today and has a specified ending period. For instance, maybe it's a 10-year term policy, a 20-year term policy, or 30-year term insurance policy. So what that means, if I buy a 20-year term insurance policy, I'm going to be covered from today for the next 20 years. When that 20 years is up, the coverage ends, and I paid for premium, which was the cost. The cost for that insurance that I paid was strictly for coverage for that period of time. If I died, my beneficiary got something out of the money I spent. If I'm alive, I'm alive. I got something out of the money that I spent, okay? It's called peace of mind. So, what you're going to have is the coverage ends, there's no residual value. So it's just like subscription service from Netflix. When that month is up on Netflix, you don't get anything left over if you cancel the Netflix subscription. It's the same thing on life insurance, especially term insurance. If you cancel that term insurance policy, there's nothing left over if it's on a payment date or when it expires. Now, with regards to the different types of term insurance generally it's expressed as in a period of time sometimes we will see annual renewable term life insurance which means that policy renews every year just like your auto and home insurance we're going to tell you that type of insurance is rarely purchased today where it fits well is if you're an individual and say you have something short-term gosh like say you got a three-year car loan and you just wanted to insure that three-year car loan so you maybe would buy an annual renewable term policy now because you're a year older and it renews every year the cost of annual renewable term insurance goes up every year so annual renewable term fits really well if you're looking for life insurance for just literally a couple years it's not something you would buy if you see yourself needing the insurance you know seven to ten years That's where generally you step into a 10-year term policy. 10-year term policy is exactly what it is. It covers you for 10 years for an amount of death benefit. Now, the price isn't going to change during those 10 years. Where is that a good fit? It's a good fit if you have, again, a 10-year note. Say you took out a home equity loan on your house and you know it's a 10-year home equity loan. Or maybe you're supporting your child's, you know, you're a cosigner on a college student loan. And you want to cover that for 10 years because you know the person hopefully will have the loans paid off in about that time frame. I myself am actually applying our businesses taking out a 10-year term insurance policy on me here in the next month or two because we recently made a rather substantial business acquisition in one of our businesses. And we have a bank loan so we want to protect the business that in the event that I die in the next 10 years that there's an amount of money that's going to be there to help pay off that loan. So that's a good application for a 10-year term. I always really, really hesitate with planning clients when we talk about life insurance and they'll say, you know, I just want to buy a 10-year term. And I hear the common theme of, we know, Jeff, I'm 42. The house is almost paid for. You know, I've got everything really lined up. I'm going to be in great shape when I'm 52. Well, guess what happens come 52? They stepped up in their house, end up assuming a much larger mortgage because their plans had changed. But they forgot along the way they only had 10 years worth of life insurance. So that 10 years really goes fast. So I really caution people from be very careful buying a 10-year term unless you know it's something specific and isolated like the example I gave on our business loan. Okay. Next area we see a lot is we see 20-year term insurance. Same thing. It's going to cover you for 20 years. Tend to see that, you know, that fits well if somebody has a 15-year mortgage or if their kids are young, kids are eight, nine years old, and they want to provide coverage for them through the high school years, through the college years, things of that nature. So the 20-year term starts to really fit into the wheelhouse of most, I would say, approaching middle age families or families with children in elementary school that can potentially provide some benefit. Next up would be 30-year term insurance and probably 30-year term life insurance is one of the most popular and the reason is is people I think mentally tie it directly to a 30-year mortgage. I just took out a 30-year mortgage. I'm going to buy a 30-year term insurance and so I think in our heads we think that fits really nicely and in some ways it does and again the price isn't going to change during the 30 years. 30-year term life insurance works really well if you're a young family. You can buy a lot of life insurance that covers for a long period of time at a pretty reasonable cost because it is term insurance. And remember, term insurance, you're just paying for the privilege of life insurance for that period of time. So that works well for young families. Also works well if there's uh, young professionals in business together, you know, maybe 30s and 40s, and they want to protect themselves that if one of the business partners passes away, there is some funds provided. It's called a buy-sell agreement. Sometimes those 30-year terms fit really well into that scenario too. So now, a couple common things to think about with term life insurance. Term life insurance is priced two ways. It's priced with what's called the premium during the time. So if you buy a 10-year term or 20-year term or 30-year term, they call that the current rates. So that's what the life insurance company is currently charging their customers for that term period of life insurance. But then there's these things called guaranteed rates. Guaranteed rate means that at the end of the term, some of these term insurance policies will actually stay active, but the price jumps substantially to what's called the life insurance company's guaranteed rate. For instance, maybe you buy a 20-year term. The term is up and say you're paying, oh, let's say roughly $100 a month for the premium. That guaranteed rate when the 20-year term's up could skyrocket significantly. It could go up three or four times. It could be three to four hundred dollars a month. You might say, well, why would I keep it? Well, the only reason someone would keep it in that scenario when you're beyond the term and you have that ability to continue it is in the event that you're terminally ill. Lord forbid, or you have a very serious illness that you can foresee passing away in the next couple of years, that's a possibility. It may make sense to carry that through that a few more years under those much higher guaranteed rates but most cases you want to think term life insurance is for just that period of time there is one important benefit outside of the death benefit which is obvious what the what the benefit is if you die it's going to pay a lump sum of money the second benefit is something called convertibility a lot of these term life insurance policies are convertible to permanent life insurance issued by that life insurance company with no medical questions asked. So what that means is if I purchased a 30-year term insurance that was fully convertible for the whole 30 years, maybe I'm 20 years into it and I develop runaway diabetes. So what I can do is because I have diabetes that's out of control, I'm not insurable anymore, but I really want to have some permanent life insurance. I can convert a portion all of that term insurance with no medical questions asked. Now, I'm going to pay a higher premium because I'm older, but I'm not going to pay a higher premium because I'm a diabetic. So, convertibility. Now, some of these policies, the prices vary significantly. Company A, you'll see the ads on TV, 30-year term, a 42-year-old healthy male can buy it for $50 a month, and then you'll call someone, an agent, and say, oh, it's $100 a month. Let me give you a little bit of explanation on that. First and foremost, when you look at these online quotes for life insurance or the calls where you're going direct, you're not going direct to the insurance company. Okay, Very rarely are you actually going directly to the company. You are still working with an intermediary, some type of agent. It's just they don't call themselves an agent. They want to give you the perception that you're cutting out the middleman. Well, these are really just sophisticated insurance agencies who have set up online platforms, and they're licensed and usually in many states. So in most of these cases, you're not cutting out the agent. You're still dealing with an agent. The reality is if you want to talk to your own hometown local agent face-to-face, that's something I probably highly recommend because you're not necessarily going to get a bitter deal because you're not really cutting anybody out. Okay? But uh, with regards to that, when you get these quotes on insurance, some of those are convertible for only, say, five years of a 20-year term or 10 years of a 30-year term, where some are convertible for the entire term period. And you might not think that's much of a value for you, but my recommendation is you should really always leave that avenue open for yourself in the future that if you do want to switch to permanent life insurance. So for that reason, I really recommend term life insurance that is fully convertible for the entire term period. If you can't find that, try to get it convertible for as long as you can. So that's term insurance in a nutshell. All right, let's talk next about, since we're talking about convertibility, permanent life insurance. And again, a lot of flavors of this ice cream. I'm going to break down to kind of the major ones that I see. And again, there's There's an awful lot of twisting and turning and misconceptions out there on permanent life insurance, and some of those we're going to get into here in a little bit when we talk about what I consider the sales scams with life insurance. But permanent life insurance, the basic concept of permanent life insurance is you are purchasing coverage today, and you want that life insurance to be covering you for as long as you live, period, whether you live five years or you live another 80 years. That's permanent. You're paying for life insurance that you want to be there when you die. Now, what the insurance company is going to say is you've got some options. Do you want to pay the premium for your entire lifespan? You can do that. Or do you want to shrink the premium payment down? Maybe you only want to pay the premiums for another 20 years. You have these things called 20-pay whole life insurance policies. Been around for decades. They are paid over 20 years, and that policy is paid for forever. Then you'll see some of these whole life insurance policies that are paid up at age 65. And what that means is it doesn't matter if you purchased it at 22 or 51. When you reach age 65, the insurance company has priced it that that policy is paid for and your death benefit will continue for the rest of your life. Those two are examples of what I call whole life insurance. And whole life insurance has been around, again, many cases over 100 years The basic concept of whole life insurance is you're giving an insurance company an amount of money every month or every quarter or once a year. They're taking a portion of that money and they're paying for the insurance cost for that year. Then they're taking a portion of that insurance premium and they're setting it back. Now, I'm oversimplifying this, but I'm doing it, you know, in layman's terms. They're sending that money back to help pay your future life insurance premiums. Now sometimes, and most times, they express this in what's called a surrender value, or people say, oh, it has a savings account, and it does. There's two components to permanent life insurance. There's the death benefit, and then there's the cash value. After a certain time when you have these policies, if you were to cancel one of these policies, you may have a certain amount of money in cash value, i.e. kind of like a savings account. It's not a savings account but it kind of looks and acts like that. You can take the money out. If you cancel the policy, the money actually goes with you. What you get on the savings account depends on the type of uh, permanent life insurance it is, but that's the basic concept. So think in your mind when you're buying whole life insurance, there's two components. Part of it's paying the individual insurance cost for you and part of it's going back into this residual account, the savings account, if you will. Whole life insurance to me fits very well in some circumstances. In some circumstances, it does not fit very well. You know, I think you're going to find a lot of times when you listen to this podcast and hear people talk to me, very rarely am I going to tell you, hey, never buy this and never buy that. To me, there's applications for everything. I'm you know, a big believer in moderation, right? <laughs> so, look, let's talk about where permanent life insurance may work. Permanent life insurance would work really well if you have a newborn, a young child, and you want to get a certain amount of life insurance to help cover the cost, Lord forbid, if they were to pass away as a child. Consumer advocate groups many times will argue these points and say, oh, you don't need to buy life insurance on a kid because they don't have any financial obligations. They don't have any dependents. Well, I haven't met any of those consumer advocates who have been where I've been, where I've had friends that have had teenage kids pass away. And, or little kids, and I'll tell you, the last thing you want to do as a parent, any of us, I think, is see one of our kids pass away, and the emotional strain and uh, stress upon us, it sometimes can be overwhelming. I think the last thing we need is a bill for the funeral costs and everything for a child, so for that circumstance, you can buy whole life insurance on a little kid for like 20-25 bucks a month will cover at least the burial and I think that makes a lot of good sense you know if you're going to spend 15 to 20 dollars a month on a streaming subscription on your tv I think it makes a lot of sense if you have a child or little kids you should spend the same amount on them to make sure you have something covered the other thing that can do is when they are maturity many of these policies you can set up permanent whole life insurance policies you only pay them 20 years And when they're paid for, you can hand the policy over to them and let them do what they want. My dad and mom purchased a whole life insurance company from a very large insurance company when I was a little kid. And I remember to this day what I did with it. When I was 23, 24 years old, I cashed in the policy. I think there was a couple thousand dollars in there. And I took the couple thousand dollars and went to the local jewelry store and bought the engagement ring for my wife. My wife still wears that same engagement ring as her wedding ring today. So maybe I should have kept the whole life policy, but I think I got something pretty nice out of the cash value. Worked out pretty well for me 30 years later. <laughs> so again, permanent life insurance is works well in that situation on a young person. Another area where permanent life insurance potentially works well is if I'm a business owner, and especially if I'm in a contracting trade, There's this concept called key person life insurance where I buy life insurance on myself. The company owns the policy. The company pays the premium. If I die, that amount of death benefit goes back to the company. Why permanent life insurance works well in those scenarios, especially if you're a contractor. Contractors have to get something called performance bonds. We're not going to go build that street or build that bridge or be the masonry on this apartment building they have to get a guarantee from a bonding company to the builder and the ultimate owner of that building that they're going to finish the work on time and it's going to be done according to specs. Now, bonding companies obviously look at that contractor's financial status very, very closely. So one of the things they look at is the assets. Well, the cash value in a permanent life insurance policy is an asset on that construction firm's balance sheet. So bonding companies love to look at those balance sheets and see a life insurance policy because the way they look at it, they got themselves covered two ways. If, Lord forbid, this contractor dies in the middle of the project, there's money there to help the company finish the project. Number two, if they are in financial difficulty and they need money, they might be able to tap that cash value to help meet some of their bills. So that's another good application for permanent life insurance. Another, and what I'd tell kind of final application that I recommend or something to consider is people would use it for estate planning. Obviously, if you're, I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds on this, but if someone has a sizable estate and is concerned about paying the federal tax obligations, there is a form of permanent whole life insurance called Second to Die, where the second person passes away. It actually pays a lump sum to the person's estate. So that's where many times it's a good fit. And in most cases, again, whole life insurance is what fits the bill for this. Another type of permanent insurance that came about in the early 80s is universal life insurance. Let me explain a little bit of where this came about. Let's roll back the clock to the late 70s and early 80s. Interest rates were substantially higher. Not unusual in the early 80s to, gosh, see what CD rates in the teens. I know, for you young people, it sounds crazy. You actually had mortgages in the teens, a 13%, 14 15% mortgage. Imagine buying a house today with that. So what happened is you could get that substantial amount of money on CDs and on bonds. So the insurance company wasn't able to really keep up because they didn't find that whole life insurance was, was quote, as competitive anymore. So they came up with this thing called universal life insurance. And what universal life insurance did Instead of when you purchase it, when you purchase whole life insurance, that cost of your insurance is actually locked in at that age. So if you bought a whole life policy at 25, the cost of the insurance for your entire lifetime is locked in for the insurance company. On a universal life insurance policy, it's not designed that way. You're actually buying within a universal life policy, you're buying annual renewable term life insurance policies. So 25, the cost of the insurance is really cheap. But by the time you're 60, the cost of the insurance within that universal life is really expensive. But what happens is you might pay a premium well above what the initial cost is for the insurance, and that extra money is going to go into a savings account. The whole idea was the savings account was going to grow because remember in the early 80s, they were projecting they could pay 8 9 10% on some of these accounts. So they looked really great. Because even though the cost of insurance was going up, you got 8-9% on your money, there was little chance that these policies were going to run out of cash and fail. Well, you know, things have a way of really messing up, right? Interest rates dropped. So interest rates have collapsed over the last 20 to 30 years. So the challenge that's happened today with universal life insurance policies, especially a lot of them were sold years ago, is they're not paying the interest rate that they were originally projecting and the cash value did not grow like it was supposed to. So what happens is the amount of money that was gonna be there to help pay your insurance premiums, because remember these insurance premiums are going up every year, that amount of money is not available. So what's happening is these policies are what I call rolling over. The cash values are rolling over and going down and when it goes down fast, you got a couple years to jump ship because it'll drain the cash value and literally I've seen some of these illustrations Literally in a couple of years, so universal life insurance had a, you know was well intended, well thought out to a degree, but didn't take into account what happens when interest rates collapse. Now we're in a different situation today. Maybe someone should consider universal life insurance. I don't know. It has its advantages. Interest rates are very low, so the risk some would say as well. There is no risk because interest rates are so low. I remember there's always risk in something. So I don't know that I would still recommend a universal life insurance policy. I think I would still recommend a good old standby whole life insurance policy. Just as an insurance agent, many, many years sold a lot of these policies. You know, I've seen too many clients, unfortunately, where these interest rates drop and get burned. And as a planner, I have people come in every day and they'll show me, their life insurance policy, and we ask for a reillustration, and that's with the insurance company will reillustrate the policy now based on the circumstances today. And boy, they don't look good. So, not a big fan of universal life insurance. Much bigger fan of permanent whole life insurance. Now, there's also other flavors of this universal life insurance because you know in the insurance industry, one thing they like to do is come out with a new flavor and a new sales tactic and tell you new bells and whistles. There's variable universal life insurance not going to get too deep in the weeds on this one. Basically, that savings account that you have invests in a basket of investments that mimic and act like a potential mutual fund. They're not a mutual fund. You can't buy and sell them, but they look and act like very similar mutual funds that are on the market. So the theory is, well, if that I can get more stock market like returns and the account will grow better. Well, also goes the other way. The stock market also goes down at times, and boy, there's nothing more damaging in these policies when you see a negative investment return on the cash value, and especially if it occurs over a year or two, or it's a real severe year, like you go back to 2008. So not a huge fan of variable universal life insurance policies. Last flavor of that we're going to talk about is there's these things called indexed universal life insurance policies. And they're a type of universal life insurance policy that invests in a set index in that savings account. And the sales pitch goes something like this. Well, you know, if the S&P goes up, you can only get a growth on your investment. But we have this guarantee that you're going to get a guaranteed return. So you do have a floor. These policies potentially have some merit because they're probably the closest thing that can maybe act like a whole life insurance policy. One of the negatives I have is the fees on these variable universal life and these indexed universal life policies can be quite significant. So you better really get an understanding and get an objective view. Does this make sense? Because the fees can be really high. So that's kind of permanent life insurance in a nutshell and talk a little bit about where the best uses are. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the potential traps and the things to really watch out for. First and foremost... Big believer in it, you should buy from an individual and a person. And my theory on this is simply because life insurance is a confusing product to purchase. You better make sure you have a professional explaining it to you. And you better ask a lot of questions. And I would look for someone who has a CLU certification or a CHFC or potentially a CFP. Some CFPs do still sell life insurance policies. So sit down with a professional, ask a lot of questions. And one of the biggest questions that I tell people is don't be afraid to ask, what are you, Mr. or Miss insurance agent, making off me purchasing this policy? And there's no reason you shouldn't know what you're being sold and how much that person is making. I believe complete transparency and disclosure in every transaction we do. Frankly, I think cars should be purchased that way. I don't have a problem with a car dealership making money off my car purchase, I recognize they're in business for a reason. They're not a non-profit. I'm not one of these people that goes in to buy a car and I want to get that car right at cost. You know, look, I want that dealer to be in business. I want them to thrive. I don't want to overpay. I'm going to get good value. But if I have a problem with that car, I want to be able to come back and be taken care of. The only way I know that is that they're a viable ongoing entity, which means they have to make a profit. You know, we have to be very careful when we think that we everyone should be a nonprofit because I think the long-term benefit you're going to derive from that product or service is going to be very poor. Life insurance is, you know, no different. You should know what is this person making, and does it sound reasonable? Does it sound reasonable in your mind for what they're doing for you? And hey, maybe shop and compare. Check with two or three insurance agents. What are they each proposing? And are they willing to disclose what they're going to make off of this transaction? I don't have a problem with you doing I think that's a wise course of action. So that's the first thing is remember, you want to make sure when somebody's trying to separate you from your money, what are they going to get out of it? If they're upstanding, honest, and transparent and giving you good advice, I would think they'd have no problem telling you how much they're going to make off the transaction. I personally don't. That's why I'm a fiduciary advisor. I have no problem telling my clients how much they make off our services. They should know that. should be transparent. Let them be the judge if they're providing a service, if they're getting some value out of what they're paying. So that's the first thing I think. Second thing is be very weary of well-advertised schemes, and I call them schemes because I hear them all the time on the radio, and one of the most often ones I hear is the bank on yourself concept. This concept is, and what what I find entertaining about it is they tell you all the great benefits and features of banquing yourself, but they never tell you you're buying life insurance. If you need life insurance, you buy life insurance for the death benefit. You don't buy life insurance for the investment. Let me repeat that. You buy life insurance because you need the death benefit. You don't buy life insurance for an investment. It's not a very efficient use. Very rarely does it make sense for one to actually purchase life insurance as an investment. Okay, so the general rule of thumb is don't do that. Buy life insurance for the death benefit. So if you're being sold a scam or this idea of how you can do this and do that with this insurance policy, now later in life it's going to do that, you better hit the pause button and say, wait a minute. Maybe I need to go speak to a fee-based financial planner. Have them look at this and say, does this make sense? It may make sense. I'm almost sure to bet you it probably doesn't. Okay. So just be very careful of concepts that are always trying to separate you from your money right now for the promise of something that may or may not be there in the future with regards to like a monthly income. Death benefit is one thing. Now let's talk a little bit about what type of insurance company you should look for. You know, most insurance companies and insurance in the United States is regulated by the states. So every state Whatever state you live in, that's who regulates your life insurance that you're going to buy. So that life insurance company has to be approved to sell that product in your state. That doesn't mean it's an endorsement. It just simply means it has met the screening test and meets all the laws of the state you're in to be able to sell that policy to you. You still need to do your due diligence. How much life insurance you should purchase? I think there's a couple ways you could go here. I've heard some adages that, always should buy 8 to 10 times your income. Be very careful of using just simple multipliers of your income. I've always found, though, that they're kind of general. Uh, First thing you want to think about is you're going to have to have some burial costs, right? You're going to have final expense. You have debt. Do you have any children? Are you going to have education expense for your children? How about your income? If you pay off, if you have burial expense and your debt covered, is your spouse or your children going to need an amount of income to provide for their needs, their food, their clothing? their education expense, everything else they're going to have the rest of their life. So think of those things that go into it. A good professional life insurance agent will have what's called a need analysis software. Most financial planners will as well, and they can do an analysis and actually tell you this is how much life insurance you should have now. It tells you if you're shortfall or if you have too much. Believe it or not, sometimes people can have too much life insurance and sometimes the wrong type. So that's kind of life insurance in a nutshell. I hope you got something out of this today. When you drive to work or something else, and we're going to cover some more educational topics here this winter. I'm kicking around some ideas. If you have an idea on a topic, or if you've been at a had a guest speaker, or heard another podcaster talk about something, always looking for guests. And you can always email us at podcast at plan to retire dot com, and that's the number two podcast at plan to retire dot com. And if you want to check us out, more information about our firm, it's pretty simple, plan Bottom of the homepage has all of our legal disclosures. I highly recommend you read those so you understand what our regulatory structure is. It's very important. Again, we're all about transparency and full disclosure. So in that, feel free and I hope you have a wonderful day and stay healthy. And remember what I always say, if you're not doing the planning, that means somebody else is doing the planning for you. Thank you for tuning into the Plan to Retire podcast. Head on over to plantoretire.com. That's the number 2, so plan the number 2 retire.com to learn more, schedule a no obligation introductory phone call or to subscribe to this free podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. We'll see you next time on the Plan to Retire podcast.